Greetings, ladies and gents. It is uh, Tuesday, February 15th, uh, 2022. Hope everyone had a, uh, a love-filled Valentine's Day. As I mentioned uh, in my Twitter feed earlier, uh, we have uh, a case of COVID here in the house. My fiance came down with COVID. Uh, my son also has a pretty bad cold, stayed home from school today. So I've had my hands fill around the house and uh, I apologize for getting this out so late in the day. But uh, most of the stuff I'm gonna be covering is not so time sensitive that it needs to be acted on right away. Um, there was a ton of research out today that I went through. I wanna go through, uh, just, just gonna go through four of the notes today, the bullet points that I uh, wrote down from those. So uh, Convexity Maven, uh, which is, a uh, I'm not sure if he shares his notes for free or not on his website, but um, just Google Convexity Maven. Um, see if you can get on the mailing list there. He He's a super, super smart guy, really knows the bonds, bond market inside and out. Um, one of those guys that uh, uses a lot of big words, and you'll probably have to read his notes a couple of times to digest it all. But um, he makes some really great points. So just to, I, I actually tweeted out a few of his charts earlier. Well, let's just touch on some bullet points. Um, you know, he kind of hammers home something that I think most of us know, which is that the bond market tends to be the best predictor of the economy. Uh, now, so there are some people who take umbrage at that contention. The reason being that uh, stocks, uh, pretty much since the Fed has had its thumb on the scales on the long end of the curve, the bond market hasn't been quite as useful a predictor uh, of the economy. It really, the 10 year yield should have gone a lot higher last year and it didn't because the Fed was in there on the bid all the time. So they've artificially depressed the so-called term premium uh, on long duration bonds. Obviously as they taper off the bid and as they begin to reduce the balance sheet, that will change. Uh, but the point that he's making here is simply that an invert, when the yield curve inverts, and it's not there yet, um, the most typical metric quoted for the yield curve is the two-year, 10-year spread. That's still 40 basis points from inversion. Uh, and I really think that two -year, the two-year bond has gone too far too fast. It's now pricing in, I think, is it one, where are we now? It's at 160, so it's priced in essentially, uh, you know, 135 basis points of tightening, which that's like a little over uh, a little over five hikes. So I know there are a lot of people that think the Fed will never actually get to hike six or seven times, which is what the market's currently pricing in. It's a fair contention. The economy is has some tailwinds and it remains resilient, but there's a lot of risks coming up. Inflation remains very high. We're obviously seeing a bit of a pullback in commodity prices here. The Russia-Ukraine news uh, has oil down 4%. So we'll see. But my contention has always been that inflation, while it will decelerate throughout the first half of the year, uh, probably throughout the balance of the year, I should say, I'm not sure that the deceleration in... Hold on, let me just turn off my squawk service here. It's talking over me. There we go. Uh, my contention has been that the, the deceleration will not be as fast as many expect. Uh, so the, the so-called third derivative, the rate of change of the rate of change will be uh, not as quick as people expect. Um, he points out that the fact that a, a $50 million trade in the bond market is pretty small, whereas a $50 million trade in the equity market is quite large. The point he's trying to make here is simply that the bond market is just so much more significant globally than the, than, than stock market, than the stock market is. So something to keep in mind, and that really, I think, is uh, again, what he's trying to hammer home here is that the bond market overall is just so much more important. And when central banks aren't intervening to the extent that they have been, tends to lead pretty much everything.
Um, he notes that to the twos 10 spread falling below zero is a almost perfect predictor of recession. However, it does, it does take an average of 16 months for the recession to occur after inversion actually happens. Now we'll obviously have to see what happens here over the next few weeks. The curve has begun to re-steepen. That's mostly a function of the Russia-Ukraine news. I think people, I think a lot of people piled in to um, the short two-year trade uh, and have kind of gotten caught short here. Uh, and the, you know the two-year is rallying a bit. We actually went long a little bit today because we are very exposed to interest rates uh, in our tech short. Um, anyway, moving on. What he refers to as the Kratom line, which is the five-year forward, five-year rate. Uh, when that drops below Fed funds, it's very bearish for the global economy. That has just happened. Uh, so that's basically an alternate predictor of recession. And he's pointing out the fact that uh, we're already at a dangerous spot there. The five-year, 30-year spread, which is a, another popular yield curve measure, uh, is also very close to a recession prediction. So there's signs out there all over interest rate markets uh, that the economy could be in trouble here. Uh, obviously, it's too soon. I, I, I think the, uh, I forget the name of the, of the indicator. Um, it might be the, uh, the national, um, I forget, I'm not even, <laughs> it's one of these groups that's like a watchdog for recession risks, and they've got the, the chances of recession, I think, right around 20%, which I think is probably far too low with what's going on out there, but we shall see. Let's, uh, oh, one more thing from him. Uh, he also looks at the five-year, 30-year spread one year out, the implied spread one year out. He actually thinks that that is what the Fed is probably most worried about. I did tweet out that chart earlier, so have a look at it. Moving on to Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley, their chief strategist uh, for equities. Uh, he was very early last year, uh, caught a lot of flack for it, but pretty much everything that he predicted has come to pass. So very much worth listening to what Mike Wilson has to say. And I think he makes a great point right off the bat, which is that CPI is really old news. Inflation is old news. Like we know that inflation is high. We know that it's probably topping out or will top out soon and that it will decelerate. You know, the market is supposed to be forward looking. It's been obsessed with inflation and rate hikes here for a while. The market's priced six or seven hikes in. Um, so one could argue that we are kind of at or near peak Fed or peak hawk. Uh, and, and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of doubters out there about whether the Fed really will be able to hike, you know, even five times, let alone seven. Uh, I know like Keith McCullough over at Hedgeye in his, in his you know, a priceless mocking tone is basically making a call saying that they're never, they're never going to get more than three or four in. So we shall see. Going back to Mike Wilson, he maintains that because the, this fixation on inflation and rate hikes is now old news and we should be focusing on growth. And he is extremely bearish on global growth and with good reason. There's a lot going on out there. Um, the, he points out the lowest Michigan consumer confidence reading. That's the University of Michigan study. Lowest reading since 2011. I mean, consumer confidence has plummeted. And I actually tweeted out another chart today. I believe it was from Goldman Sachs pointing out that they don't think the consumer confidence can go much lower. I totally disagree. Just looking at the chart, there's plenty of room for consumer confidence to deteriorate further. That being said, the point here, the point they're trying to make with that chart is that, you know, uh, consumer sentiment is so low and is getting close to a bounce. Now, they may be, we may bounce on that front in the next three to six months, but a ton of damage can be done to consumer stocks between now and then. So I, you know, Goldman, 
turned bearish late January, and now they almost seem to be trying to walk that back. So typical bulge bracket Wall Street firm, probably getting a ton of pushback from their high net worth clients. Why are you so bearish? You're killing my portfolio. And it looks to me like they're trying to walk it back now. Anyway, Mike Wilson also points out negative real. So wage growth, inflation adjusted wage growth since the Great Recession has been nothing short of pathetic. And this is really one of the travesties uh, that has led to this explosion in wealth inequality. It's something the Fed is very aware of. I mean, they, as much as they want to make sure that wage inflation doesn't go too high too fast, you know, for them to even be giving off the appearance that they're trying to, to you know, curtail wage growth, given what inflation has done, given the fact that real wage growth has been negative uh, during the pandemic, um, it would just be terrible optics. Now, granted, the average American doesn't really know much about this stuff, but they do know what's happening to their wallet and their purchasing power. The Fed really needs to find a way to allow wage growth to continue rising. Uh, I think it's, it was about a 5% clip so far this year. Inflation's closer to 10%. The optics there are terrible. You know, they're already walking such a fine line. How can they allow wage growth to um, remain relatively high while bringing overall inflation down. It's a real pickle. Uh, and obviously the politicians from both parties, it doesn't really matter which party is in, you know, is in the majority is, is controlling all the reins because constituents who, you know, regardless of the party uh, that their congressman or congresswoman or senator is from, they're phoning them up, they're angry. So all incumbent politicians are very sensitive to this issue. Uh, and there is going to be tremendous pressure on the Fed. There is already, there will continue to be pressure on them to get inflation out of the headlines before the midterms. In order to do that, the Fed has to engineer a controlled slowdown in the economy. And that's, of course, what Mike Wilson is talking about here. The fact that he thinks estimates for 2022 are way too high, and they're really assuming almost no hit to corporate margins. Corporate margins have gotten, I'll just say S&P 500 margins, have risen so high primarily because, first of all, of a low inflation environment most of the last 13 years, but also because they just refuse to pay their, their workers. Now, some of that is starting to change a little bit, but you can tell they are holding out as long as they can. They are doing everything in their power. Even though they're hiking prices for their products, they're really not hiking wages very much. And the reason for that is because their stock price, they know that if margins look like they're peaking and ready to come down, their stocks are going to get hammered. So it's disgraceful. It's immoral. But hey, that's never really mattered <laughs> in business, at least in this country, right? right? Not just this country, throughout history, throughout the world. So um, let me move on here to Mike Wilson's other points. He points out that the S&P 500 is tilted heavily towards consumer goods rather than services. That makes inflation a problem for the S&P 500. I think people, you know, I think people understand this, but you look at the S&P, it's still what? That's not even down six, not even down 10% from all-time highs. It just won't go away. It just keeps getting bought on every single dip. And Mike is contending essentially that this some of this is built on the expectation that margins are safe, that wage inflation will decelerate. Uh, that companies have purchasing power, and again, that their margins won't fall too far from where they are. He thinks that's a very dangerous assumption, and I tend to agree with him. 
Um, notes that the inventory sales ratio is rising due to slowing demand. Um, that's a classic problem for companies. That is becoming a problem as I speak for them. Um, and he also notes that companies with rising inventory sales ratios, their stocks are getting punished. That's a trend that's probably only just getting started. Let me move on here to a piece, really fascinating piece today from RBC on all about oil. Uh, they are super oil bulls or super bulls on oil, I should say. They have a 115 target on WTI. The thesis is basically this. They see inventories continuing to fall. They think they see OPEC spare capacity continuing to dwindle. And they note that shale oil is just not happening. Uh, President Biden it recently issued a call to the shale oil companies to kind of like, let's go, let's get it going. Let's increase the supply of oil out there. Shale oil companies are not responding. The economics still just aren't there for them. You know, when you consider the fact that oil, like relative to 20 years ago, oil is dirt cheap when priced in stocks. Energy and commodities in general have done basically nothing. Obviously, we had that huge run up from 2002 until 2007 in oil prices. But the run up in stocks over the last 20 years has been much, much bigger. So that general thesis that we have that we've pushed about commodities just being dirt cheap in stock terms, where it's their turn to start to sort of catch up to stocks. Uh, clearly, RBC very much on board with that. You know, oil's down 4% today on the Russia-Ukraine news. Um, we, we were fortunate to kind of get out of our oil longs and, and our commodity longs in general uh, a couple of days ago. So we haven't uh, suffered too much from what's gone on. But make no mistake, I'm, I can't wait to get long oil and agriculture and copper on other base metals. Uh, I, I'm very eager to buy when it looks like we've had a nice, healthy correction and the weak hands have been flushed out. I'm not sure when that'll be. That's where technical analysis comes in really handy. We will use our technical analysis to try to pick a good entry point. We're, we're long a little bit of DBA, DBB, DBE right now, but very, very small relative to what we had before. Really, the only huge position we still have on is on uranium. Uh, we are along that, that Sprott Uranium Trust. Uh, we have a, a pretty sizable, beta adjusted, we have a pretty sizable position on that. Probably won't add to that until or unless we see a breakout from the recent consolidation range. But for now, uranium really remains our only position uh, on the commodity front, or at least the only position of note. Now, interestingly enough, uh, TD, as Toronto Dominion, had a, a different note out today on oil. They actually were very bearish. The thesis there is just simple. They think supply tightness is starting to ease. And of course, the story on oil, other than geopolitics, has been supply is simply not keeping up with demand. Now, if the global economy is slowing down, which clearly seems to be, that would indicate, you know, the best, as they say, the best cure for high oil prices is high oil prices or high gas prices or high electricity prices, right? So the consumer has really gotten hammered. It's showing up in consumer sentiment indicators. So it's not hard to make a case here that demand will slow for oil and start to catch up with these supply issues, perhaps just as they're, they're easing. So the bear case for oil is legitimate. My attitude towards it is that this is the, the supply issues are long-term and structural. So I think, you know, we talk about BTFD, buy the dip, buy the effing dip, excuse me. Um, I have the explicit language filter on for my podcast, so that's all I can say. Um, but, you know, BTFD in commodities, I think this is only getting started 
Yes, we're going to see a flush if it becomes evident that recession risks are rising. There's no question. The dollar also, you know, remains pretty buoyant. It got hammered today just because of the Ukraine-Russia news. Um, but I remain, I remain skeptical. I know there's a lot of long-term dollar bears out there. Their case makes a ton of sense. The U.S. has these massive trade and budget deficits. There are too many dollars out there, according to some anyway. Um, but, you know, when you've got a situation where credit markets are very stressed out, uh, where you've got a concomitant slowing in economic growth, the case for a flight to dollar safety remains very strong. Um, and, you know, even though the dollar index has been very robust uh, over the last, I'm not sure if it was six to nine months or something, um, it hasn't put a dent in commodities at all. And I want to point this out. A lot of people seem to think, remember, the dollar index is a BS index when it comes to measuring the true strength of the dollar. All it does is measure the strength of the dollar against a bunch of other crappy fiat currencies. 53% of it or something is the euro. You have the pound and the yen in there. These are all absolute garbage fiat currencies. The dollar is garbage too, but it's the world's reserve garbage currency. So the dollar has that, uh, as um, Charles de Gaulle called it, that exorbitant privilege. Um, but you know, you're seeing Bitcoin and Ethereum and this other crypto catch a really good bid. Uh, put out a chart today that showed that you know inflows into these Bitcoin ETFs ha have turned po uh, net positive for the first time in a while. So you are seeing signs, and, and then of course gold, gold getting hammered today on the Ukraine Russian news, but it remains buoyant. It's catching bids on every dip. It broke out of that long term consolidation pattern. So you know the whole fiats are trash theme is really starting to pick up speed. But again, in times of fear, you are always going, or at least. Historically, you've almost always seen flight to the dollar. Now, the interesting question will be, uh, you know, traditionally foreigners sterilize our deficits using treasuries. Over the last 22 months, that kind of stopped. People started, well, it didn't stop, but there was a big transition or rotation, if you will, out of treasuries and into mega cap tech stocks. And that's kind of been part of our bear thesis on tech stocks uh, that, you know, those, first of all, the treasury cannot allow that to continue unabated indefinitely. They are now competing with Apple and Microsoft and Google and Amazon for just for cash flows. We're having enough trouble financing our deficits as it is. The Fed is backing off. Uh, they're not going to be on the bid for much longer. I, no one is talking about this and I don't know why. People have told me that I'm nuts for even suggesting this. But I really think the Treasury and the Fed have pretty much had enough with this crazy, blind dip buying in these names that are carrying. Sorry, I know this kind of betrays a very bearish tilt, but remember, my bearishness is mostly limited just to these mega cap tech names. These valuations, in my view, remain rather absurd. I don't think there's a country in the world that's worth over $2 trillion. I don't care what the valuation metrics show on the PE or the P price to free cash flow. I think those are artificially inflated through financial engineering and through artificially high margins. Time will tell whether or not I'm right on that. We shall see. Uh, okay, so I've gone 20 minutes here. That was as long as I wanted to go today. So I am going to stop. Uh, markets look like they are, uh, we actually covered a portion of our, of our NQ futures long uh, about an hour ago. Uh, keep in mind, <laughs> I know I just said I was going to stop and here I, I'm, I'm just going even further, but that's okay. Um, keep in mind that 
there was a lot of put buying over the last few weeks. A lot of those puts, I believe, are for Friday expiry and they're underwater. You know, in general, the, the crowd loves puts when it should hate them and it hates puts when it should love them. There was a ton of put buying at the local lows. Some of those are going to have to be puked back up. So I think what we're seeing here is some of that, a squeeze uh, driven by put puking. And that's fine. You know, we have this core trade on where we're long a bunch of stuff and we're short and we're short in the NASDAQ. Um, but, you know, we have no compunction whatsoever about getting out of the way when it looks like prices are going to squeeze higher. You know, that's one of the tricks of the trade. That's how you make your life, you make your life easier. That's how you generate alpha. So uh, those of you who have been following my um, my NASDAQ chart with all the crazy lines and annotations know that the so-called Thanksgiving tangent, which today comes in around 14,700, that's kind of my short-term target here. That's proven to be the most important pivot uh, on the NQ chart. Uh, and there's, you know, what are we at? We're at 14,580 right now. A squeeze up to 14,700 is nothing. I firmly believe that we what we're seeing is a clear pattern of uh, consecutively uh, higher lows and lower highs. There's a clear pennant slash triangle formation on the chart. We are in consolidation. People who are long theta are getting their heads ripped off. I think that's going to continue. Uh, this is a market that just overall has a very low, what I'm calling EQ, um, which is experience quotient. I don't want to say IQ because, you know, there's a ton of inexperienced traders out there, but that doesn't mean they're dumb by any means. And they've, most of them have made a ton of money over the last 22 months. So they're definitely not dumb, but they are inexperienced. And there's a lot of hubris out there. There's a lot of laughing at the Fed. Uh, and we'll see how this all shakes out. But until I see that pennant formation give way in one direction or another, we are going to stay the course and we will trade around short-term price action. All right, everybody have a great day. We will talk to you again tomorrow.